Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay, why don't we all stand up and begin in prayer? Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our subject this evening, Outside the Church There Is No Salvation, comes from uh, a document written by St. Cyprian in the 3rd century, uh, Salus Extra Ecclesium Non Est. There is no salvation outside of the church. I was reading Father Contalemes' comments this week, giving the Holy Father his Lenten retreat. He's the preacher to the pontifical household. Can you imagine being the preacher to the Pope? Pretty awesome. But he says this in his homily, his first homily, he says, can we say that the vital problem for man of today is to establish in what way the sinner is justified when people no longer believe they need being justified or are convinced of finding justification in themselves? The vital problem for man today is to establish in what way a sinner is justified. I want to begin with a quotation from Cardinal uh, Journet, Charles Cardinal Journet, um, in his book, Theology of the Church, where he talks about this, I'd say, somewhat difficult but profound statement by St. Cyprian, that outside the church there is no salvation. And I'll read it to you, and I'll read you a couple passages that are important from it. It's not an easy text to internalize, but we'll be coming back to this a number of times today and also next week. The necessity of membership in Christ and in his church, as scripture has revealed, is a unique and simple mystery, but so profound that we can know it only by a series of complementary propositions, compelling the mind of the believer to go beyond into the silent glance of faith. For those who do not advance so far, who separate the church and the body of Christ, who separate membership in the church, and membership in Christ, or still more, who consider the church according to the pattern of purely human societies, the axiom, no salvation outside the church, immediately loses its light. It can only be a slogan seized by fanatics. That would be me. Of both extremes, in order to make it rigid or to renounce it altogether. If you're not able to go beyond the surface level, he's saying, to be able to understand its, the propositions which lead to this revelation, 
this doctrine of the church, then this statement can be no more than a slogan seized by fanatics of both extremes in order to make it rigid or renounce it altogether. Among the many topics we presented at the Institute over the years, and they have been many, I would say that this topic has brought the most, um, how should I say, the raising of the eyebrows, complaints, telling me that we should change the title. The most confusing to me were two different priests on two different occasions who asked me, well, what are you going to say? I am not in the business of making up teachings of the church. I am in the business of teaching the faith. And this is simply a doctrine of the faith which has been handed down from the earliest times, from before St. Cyprian, from the scriptures themselves. And it is our job when we are challenged with a doctrine of the faith which is difficult, and I will admit it's difficult. By the way, Cardinal Journet is, is a world-class theologian. He's dead now. World-class Thomistic theologian. And what does he say? It is difficult. It's a difficult teaching. Okay, that we only come to through a number of propositions, complementary propositions. And we have to work on understanding those propositions. They are profound, as he says. Over the next two weeks, we will work on those propositions of sacred scripture which lead to this clear teaching by St. Cyprian and the church fathers. As your flyer also states in the subtitle, does anyone know what the subtitle is of the talk? Don't look at it. Can anyone tell me what the subtitle is? Something about ecclesiology, which is a fancy 10-cent word for a study of the church. Understanding Catholic ecclesiology, or maybe better, understanding what the Catholic church is. What she believes about herself. This doctrine touches upon the very heart of what the church teaches about herself. And it will lead us, hopefully, uh, if I can present it well, into a much better understanding, not only of what the church is, but what salvation is. Much of what I'm going to say tonight to our Protestant brothers and sisters, to non-Catholics as a whole, as long as they're Christians, will have no problem. What we'll be covering next week may be a little more difficult. But again, I tell you, I am not in the business of making up teachings, nor grabbing hold of slogans. Grabbing hold of slogans is always dangerous. But we can understand things through the difficult teachings of the church by facing them, by seeking to understand them, and if we don't reject them out of hand, we will grow in our faith and our understanding of the gift of Jesus Christ. I want to begin our evening tonight by just laying out a couple of basic definitions for you. To get some basic principles out that I think that are, are very important for us to understand from a Catholic perspective and also from a Protestant perspective. And when I speak of a Protestant perspective, I want to be careful right off the bat to say that I'm going to be painting, yes, with a broad brush. Because there are many and varied teachings within the Protestant communion. And it's very difficult to grab hold of one particular point and say, everyone holds this. But for the most part, I think what I'll be saying will be staying on safe ground. I want to begin 
with these a couple of definitions, and I'll be using some quotations from Donald Atwater's A Catholic Dictionary. If you don't have this in your library, you're going to want to get it. I think it was published in 1953. Yes, very nice. I have a copy of it in my library. I grabbed it from the library right over here. You can probably pick it up quite cheap on the internet or somewhere, garage sale. Keep your eyes open for it. Nice to have a Catholic dictionary in your library because when you're those basic definitions that you want to make sure you're on safe ground, always good. Not perfect a dictionary, but it'll help you along. And so salvation. What is salvation? Outside the church, there is no salvation. Well, we better figure out what salvation is. What do we mean by that? For the most part, what the Catholic Church teaches about salvation and what the majority of Protestants understand by salvation is quite clear in agreement. Atwater says, the freeing of the soul from the bonds of sin and its consequences the freeing of the soul from the bonds of sin. You can do it shorthand. Freedom from sin. And, so from something, but also to something. Huh? And the attainment of the everlasting vision of God in heaven. Okay, it's an old-timey way of saying vision of God in heaven. It doesn't mean that we're going to be standing in heaven looking at Him for all eternity like this. God has a better sense of humor than that. No, vision in a biblical and, and patristic sense, what you see, you also know. Okay? We perceive with our eyes and we internalize what we've seen and it becomes part of us. To see is a form of knowledge. Remember Jesus in the Gospel of John in chapter 1 when John and Andrew come to Him, He says, where are you staying? And He says, Come and see. Jesus isn't talking there about coming and checking out his digs. Okay? No. He's inviting them into an internal relationship. A relationship with him. Come and see. Come and see who I am and experience that. So, what Atwater is getting at, a freeing of the soul from sin, but toward also salvation, brings us into the relationship with God And this is fundamental, absolutely fundamental. To a certain extent, as I said, Protestants, Catholics, and even Jews could agree on this definition, I think. Our next term that we need to define is justification. And this is where we start to part waters with some of our Protestant brethren. I want to remind you, by the way, that St. Cyprian, writing in the 3rd century, was writing a whole long time before Luther ever walked around. So his doctrine is not an attack on Protestants by any means. It's a simple statement of faith. But right here at the beginning, I think it's important as Catholics that we get a sense of what we believe about sanctification, about justification, about salvation. So justification... What does it mean to be justified? Atwater makes a Western distinction here that can be helpful. And he says that there are two aspects to justification. First of all, what is justice? What does it mean to be just or to give justice is to give what to another what is his due. And for a person to be just, they are equipped with all the important component parts to make them be what they're supposed to be. A man who's justified 
He's rectified. He's made right. But Atwater points to this aspect of an active justification and also a passive justification. Two ways, two sides of understanding the same mystery. And he says it this way. In its active sense, justification is the act of God declaring and making a person just. And that's why I asked you what justice is. We don't need to use fancy terms. Making him right. right. Yeah, not only rightly oriented, but more fundamentally, before he's rightly oriented, this is true, but more foundationally, rightly ordered in himself. He has all the parts in which he was designed to have. And in this way, I don't mean simply his hands and his feet. We'll get more into that. Declaring and making. And this, I want to make a point here because it's not just declaring and making, but actually the declaration of God's justification of man actually accomplishes what he declares from a Catholic perspective. That when God justifies a man, He literally rectifies him. He refashions him, if you will, in His original image and likeness. From a passive perspective, it is the changing of a soul which passes from the state of sin to that of sanctifying grace or justice. And notice, He puts those side by side. The state of the soul passing from sin a lack of the life of God within us, to the state of sanctifying grace or justice, meaning and to be made right, to be refashioned, to be a just man, is to have sanctifying grace indwelling in us. And this is where we part company with most Protestants, at least with Luther and Calvin. I would exempt most lay Protestants from this, because most don't realize this. Not all. Not all. But many have not really considered the ramifications of their position. For many Protestants, justification is only seen from an active perspective. And in an active perspective, only partially. I said from an active perspective, it is the declaring and making of the soul just. For Luther, for Calvin, and others, it's the first aspect of that that is important in justification. The declaring of the one just, but the actual making of them just in a Catholic perspective of refashioning the soul of man, of equipping him with the gift of God's life is something foreign to their theology. I'll give you an example of justification from this perspective, of, from the declaring perspective. A judge in a courtroom. A defendant comes into the room. The judge declares him to be innocent of the charges. The judge's declaration of his innocence does not mean he is innocent. It just means that he's not going to be punished for the crime. He very well could be guilty where the person remains guilty of their sin and yet is cleared of all charges. This, I think, touches upon at least Luther's perspective of justification. That God declares the person free of charge while leaving them in their sin. You know the famous dictum of Luther that man is a pile of dung covered in snow, covered in the grace of God. 
He's left in his sin. He's left in his state of denigration. And yet God ignores that fact and sees rather the justifying, the sanctifying aspects of the sacrifice of Christ and imputes that to the person. Atwater says this, Justification, well these are my words and I'll get to Atwater saying, Justification is God's juridical judgment and sanctification is the reason for God's judgment. It is simply a cloaking of sin, this is Atwater, and an extrinsic imputation of the merits of Christ. An extrinsic imputation of the merits of Christ. Dr. Marshner, who's spoken here a number of times, has a very good perspective on this. He says, for Luther, justification is the smiley face on God. In other words, it's a decision on God's part about the person. But the person is left as they were in their sin. But God ignores that fact and saves them despite of their sin. This is foreign to Catholic theology. For Catholics, there is no distinction between justification and sanctification. In fact, there is no distinction, I might say, between justification, sanctification, and salvation. It's all part of the same mystery of God. And the mystery is this, that God desires to share His life with us. I've shared with you a number of times, and I will share with you again, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1, sentence 1. If you want to understand the faith, memorize this text. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in Himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share, to make him share in his own blessed life. Sanctifying grace, what does it mean, sanctifying grace? The word grace means gift. A gift which sanctifies or makes holy. Sanctifying grace, from a Catholic perspective, is God's life dwelling in the soul. That gift of life which transforms us from the inside out. And I'd say, and there's going to be many people listening to this talk over the years as we post on our website, if you are a Protestant and you say, I don't believe what you just described Protestantism as... I don't believe that. I would say, good! It's time to stop protesting because it is here in our definition of grace and of justification, in our definition of salvation, that the fundamental problem occurs between Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and all of the Protestant reformers and the Catholic Church. For us, God truly shares His life with us, rectifies us, makes us holy, gives us a new life, refashions us in His image and likeness. It is a real, true gift of His life now dwelling in us. Or maybe I might say it is now a gift of taking us and allowing us to dwell in Him. What does it mean to be saved? From what and for what? We need to not only ask, what are we saved from? Namely, what are we saved from, guys? What is, yeah, not only sin, but fundamentally? Yeah, hell, but 
the fall of Adam and Eve. There is the problem. And that's the problem which Jesus Christ has come to fix. Never miss that fact because as soon as we detach our salvation from the real problem, we're going to misdefine salvation. Because being saved saves us from something. It's a problem that took place at the beginning. We're going to talk more about that problem a little bit later. We are saved for something though. And this is fundamental to our talk tonight and next Tuesday. We are saved for participation in divine life. Period. That is what God wants to give us. In fact, that is our salvation. Sanctifying grace? Difficult term for modern man to understand? Fine. God's life. He wants to make us share in His own blessed life. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1, sentence 1. Turn your Bibles open to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He granted us His precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. The reason why God became man, as St. Athanasius says, is so that man could become God. To become a participant in God's own life. To become, as St. Peter says in his epistle, partakers of the divine nature. Don't forget that. It's an absolutely essential point. To become partakers in the divine nature. Why is this important? Because it introduces us into, say, I would say, a broader perspective. Into some bigger questions about the nature of our salvation, about the nature of the church. And it touches, as I said earlier, upon the heart of the faith. Of what we believe about God and what we believe about creation. And why creation was made in the first place. And this is why, and I will say this a number of times over the next two weeks, This is why there is no salvation outside of Christ. And I want my Protestant brothers and sisters that are here tonight and those that are watching online to hear me very clearly. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. This is a fundamental teaching of sacred Scripture. This is a fundamental teaching of the Catholic Church. Now most people will say, Oh yeah, Deacon Sabatino, I'm with you there. But when you talk about the church, there's no salvation outside the church, now you're just downright mean. (laughs) I say back to you, if there's no salvation outside of Christ, then Christ is downright mean. Neither of those things are true. There is no salvation outside of Christ because of what salvation is. Not because God decided to be mean one day. Because He picked you and not you. Because He decided to be nice to you and not you. That is not salvation and that is not the God we believe in in the revelation of sacred Scripture. There is no salvation outside of Christ because it is in Christ and in Christ alone that eternal life is found. 
And I want to take us back now to the Gospel of John and look at a couple of texts in the Gospel of John. Chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Thy Son that the Son may glorify Thee, since Thou hast given Him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom Thou hast given Him. And this is eternal life. Huh? This is salvation. That they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Why? Why does He say that? Exactly what I was talking about, that, the vision before. Because to know in biblical terms is much more than to know intellectual doctrines. To know is to enter into a relationship with. There's an old philosophical phrase that says, knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. If you could define justice for me, there's another one you've got to stick in your head. Knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. When I know something, I am united with the thing I know. I can literally close my eyes. I can recall that thing within me. It's now become part of me. Salvation, eternal life, is union with God. And why is that? Because salvation is simply life everlasting. And there is one person, and one person alone in whom life everlasting is found. The only one that has lived from all eternity. And it's God and God alone. He is the only one that can give man salvation. It is not found by nature within man. That would make us God. It is found in the one who has existed from all eternity. And this is why Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for our salvation because He is God incarnate. He has life everlasting within Him. Okay? Turn to John chapter 14, verse 6. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Not because Jesus is mean. Not because Jesus hates Buddha. No. It's because Jesus and Jesus alone is the incarnate God. Jesus and Jesus alone has eternal life within Him. And it is Him and Him alone that can give it to others. Let's turn to 1 Timothy. Back to the epistles. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And I'm going to read it. If you're not there, just listen. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Saying the same thing. There's one way to salvation. Jesus Christ. And if my Protestant brothers and sisters are raising eyebrows saying, oh, yeah, but what about St. Joseph huh? and uh, St. Dominic and St. Anthony? We're going to be talking about that in a couple months. I'm going to be giving a presentation on the mediation of the saints and how we're to understand that. But I will say right now, right here, and I'll say it again then, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. In Him alone is eternal life. Why? And I've already mentioned this. We'll look at it real quick in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, gives us the exact reason. I'll just begin with verse 8 because I don't want, to, I don't want those that are uh, non-Catholic among us to think I'm avoiding the verse. 
See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity, of Godhood, dwells bodily. He is the incarnate God. And you have come to the fullness of life in Him. Why is Jesus Christ necessary for salvation? Because in Him dwells divinity. As John says in his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When you meet Jesus Christ, you meet the eternal God. And it's His life which can bring us salvation. Does that make sense? We could say Jesus is salvation. This is why last week, uh, Abbot Joseph said that our salvation has already been accomplished for us huh? in the Incarnation. It's now our opportunity to appropriate that salvation. There's nothing that I can do to earn that salvation. It's a gift of God. We receive it as a gift. And if I receive that gift in my soul, then I can be saved. Okay? And how do we receive that gift? How do we become partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter says? Turn to Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. If you say, Deacon Sabatino, I already know this. Say, yes, you may know it. But as Cardinal Journet says very clearly, we must put these propositions in their proper order. We must put them in their proper order to realize and understand the conclusion properly that outside the church there is no salvation. Acts chapter 2. You know the story. This is the story of Pentecost, huh? St. Peter stands up, he preaches, and 3,000 convert in a day. Can you imagine? And they must, he must have gone to bed that night pretty excited about what he was about to do. 3,000 people converted in a day. Verse 37. Now when they heard this preaching of Peter, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? It's a fancy biblical way of saying the life of God. Huh? Repent, be baptized and you will receive the gift of God's own life. Remember for our catechism in the early days, what happens when we are baptized? Original sin is washed away. Do you know that nowhere in sacred scripture does it say that through baptism original sin is washed away? Now it doesn't mean that's not true. That's an absolutely true theological conclusion. But it's not said explicitly in sacred scripture. And that's why it's important as Catholics that we get ourselves well-rooted in the Scriptures so that we can understand the theological conclusions and explain them properly. So what is baptism? Why is it necessary for a child to be dunked or an adult to be dunked three times down into the water, raised up, and suddenly we say, ah, bingo, they're saved. They have God's life within them. And now it's just a matter of them living that life out. Why? What is it about baptism that's so important? 
Let's turn quickly to Romans chapter 6. If you're, if you're wondering, why is it necessary? Is baptism simply a, uh, an affirmation of my justification? My opportunity to stand before the community and declare myself for Jesus? It's not what the Scriptures say. So let's get ourselves well-rooted in the Scriptures. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. Stop. What is St. Paul saying? He says, you people who have been baptized, stop sinning. Yes, it's possible for you to stop sinning, according to St. Paul. Stop it. That's not the life of grace. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. And notice the language St. Paul's using here. To be baptized into Christ Jesus. Not baptized like Jesus, but baptized into Him. To be baptized comes from the Greek to be plunged, to be inserted, to be plunged into Christ. And on the day when you are plunged into Christ, St. Paul says, you were plunged, you were inserted into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him huh? under the waters of baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And what is that newness of life? For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall surely be united with Him, made one, united, to be made one with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. And the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Through baptism, through being sacramentally plunged into Christ, we begin to participate in the life that Christ and Christ alone has. And that life is eternal. Death has no dominion over Him. And if you have the life of Jesus Christ in you, you will live forever, period. That is salvation. The life of Jesus Christ in you. Or I should say better, you in Jesus Christ, according to St. Paul. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ, notice again, not like Christ, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized, plunged into Christ, have put on Christ. You've been inserted into God's own life. And so that life within you will now allow you to live forever. Turn back to John chapter 3. I love this text because um, the story of Nicodemus is so wonderful because 
It's, it's a common approach that I think many people take in, in relationship to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, knowing what you know from the Gospel of John and Dr. O'Donnell's presentation, what is night in the Gospel of John? Yeah, sin, death, and exile from God. Remember, the shines in the darkness and the darkness could not take it in, could not comprehend it. And he says, he comes to him by night and says, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless you, that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, you don't know anything, Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born anothen. There's, in the Greek, there's two different ways of translating this. To be born again and to be born anew. To be born from above. Nicodemus is coming to him at night. Nicodemus is the natural man. He has not been enlivened by grace. Remember, it was the Pharisees that, sent, that came down and, and asked John, John the Baptist, what he was doing on the edge of the Jordan River, right? They didn't get baptized. So he comes to him. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher. Come on. No, no one can do these signs unless you, that you do it unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we talked about knowledge and seeing. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus just exposes the fact that he has not been enlivened by the Spirit. He's thinking on a natural level. But the Greek word here is intentionally used to show that there's two levels of understanding. Those that are living on the natural level and those that are living on the supernatural level. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered him. And this is a classic biblical usage here, literary usage, where there's a repetition of terms to explain what was said before. So if anyone doesn't understand what it means to enter the kingdom of God, to be born anothen, to be born anew, if anyone struggles with understanding what's meant here in the text, Jesus goes ahead and restates it in a new way. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and a basic principle of biblical exegesis is context, context, context. I often say, a text without a context is not a text at all. A text without a context is not a text at all. And when is the last time that we saw water and spirit in the Gospel of John before this text? In the baptism of Jesus Christ. Without baptism, Nicodemus, you cannot be plunged into the household of God. You cannot become His Son. You cannot participate in divine nature. And why? You might say, well, it just seems a little bit, I mean, geez, isn't there something, something more there? And I say, no. God made the created order for one reason, and that is to reflect and communicate His divine life. This is why in the Garden of Eden, He planted the tree of life from which man would eat and he would live forever. The created order was meant to sanctify mankind. It was meant to communicate divine life. Baptism is what water was made for. 
to communicate divine life. Jesus Christ is not only refashioning man, He's refashioning the entire created order. And so we can say that outside of baptism, there is no salvation. And you say to me, Deacon Sabatino, but you know, I mean, you know about baptism by desire, don't you? And baptism by blood, don't you know about that? Yes, and I also know that both of those phrases begin with the word baptism. And I know what the word baptism means. To be plunged into, to be inserted into, become a partaker in Jesus Christ. Because in Him and in Him alone is eternal life. We're going to talk about those other aspects of ways to be inserted into Christ. But remember, never let go of the fact that outside of Christ there is no salvation. It's the mercy of God, the Incarnation. And outside of baptism, outside of our participating in that reality of Christ's Incarnation, there is no salvation. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I don't want us to think that when we are inserted into Christ, suddenly everything is easy. Nor is it simply a matter of being inserted into Christ so that I have a one-on-one relationship with Him. It's a false understanding of what it means to become a participant in the life of God. Because when I'm inserted into Christ, I come into relationship with Jesus Christ and I come into relationship with a whole bunch of others that are also inserted into Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. We all became inserted into one body. Inserted. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free. All were made to drink of the one Spirit. Verse 27. We're going to come back to the intervening text here, but look at verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ. So what is that body he's speaking of? It is the body of Christ. And individually you are members of it. Yes. And God has appointed in His church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers, and so on. So, what is that body St. Paul's talking about that you are inserted into in your baptism? It is the body of Christ. It is the body of Christ. And we need one more step along the way here. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Here's a little nugget for us. It's going to be very important. Now I rejoice, this is St. Paul talking, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I know this is, can be upsetting some of our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, but in my flesh I complete, St. Paul saying this, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What is the body of Christ? The church. What is the body of Christ? The church. The church is the body of Christ, period. When St. Paul is talking about being inserted into Christ, becoming members of the body, he's talking about becoming members of Christ, which is the church. Very important. 
We'll come back to this text later, probably next week, about St. Paul's sufferings and making up. Because you might say to yourself, oh, geez, St. Paul, what's lacking in the, in the afflictions of Christ? I mean, isn't it all sufficient? Huh? But what's lacking is our participation. And St. Paul is working on bringing the fullness of that gift to the body. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 12 real quick. We just have two more texts to look at that are really important. They're going to set us up. All of this stuff sets us up very well for next week to enter into the real discussion, the modern debate over St. Cyprian's text. But I need to look at this and one other text, very important. We become members of the body. And if you look at chapter 12, verse 14, you'll recognize the text very well because I remember as a kid hearing this at Mass. And I'll tell you, I fell asleep. It's so sad because it's one of the most beautiful texts I've ever read as an adult. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And he go, you know the text. What's he talking about? Each one of us is a member of the body of Christ, which is the church. And within the church... Each one of us fulfills a particular function, which is a function of the body of Christ. One of us is his hand, the other is his eye, the other is his foot. So the church is the incarnation of Jesus Christ on earth. According not to Deacon Sabatino or Pope Benedict XVI, but according to St. Paul and according to Jesus Christ, because this is the Word of God. The church is the incarnation of Jesus Christ on earth. And when they meet, when people meet members of the body of Christ, they meet Jesus Christ himself. Turn quickly to Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 4. Notice the language almost identical as what St. Paul was saying earlier. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were all called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Notice the language again. In all. Through all. But grace, the gift, God's life, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, and he goes on, okay, Drop down with me to verse 11. For his gifts were that some should become apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. We saw this, right? Back in 1 Corinthians, didn't we? For the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, of the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, to the oneness of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is what we are called to as Christians. To the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by the craftiness and in deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Our life is to become His life. And His life is to become our life so that we are totally 100% unified. Justification and salvation is not something done 
in God and God alone. It is not the smiley face on God by which He leaves us in our sin, but He leaves us as dung covered in snow. Our salvation is the participation in God by which He loves us. And one who loves always seeks to share his life with another. And the reason for that is because of God's own nature. As St. John says, God is love. He shares his life with us. We'll conclude. I'm sorry to be yelling at you guys a little bit. I didn't mean to be yelling at you, but... Okay. With a question for you about the nature of this church that St. Paul is talking about. I think as followers of Jesus Christ, no matter what version of Christianity you come from, I think what I've said tonight, uh, there's not a whole lot to argue with. huh? And you can see where I'm going, of the reason why St. Cyprian can say with confidence that there is no salvation outside of the church. But we still have a lot to get into to understand that properly. The nature of the church. What is it? When was it founded and who founded it? I put that out there. Don't be afraid. Shout it out. I know I, I told my other speakers they're not allowed to do this, but. Hallelujah! In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus Christ founded the church when he said to Peter, Thou art the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. You're wrong. I didn't mean to go after you. That it's okay. I, I, I'm all right. What else? In 33 A.D. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Well, is it when he died on the cross? Huh? At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. On Holy Thursday. On the cross. I think we should take a whole thing. Because I tell you, you're all wrong. She says forever. From all eternity. I would read you the Shepherd of Hermas. An early church text written in the middle of the second century. Says this beautifully. Okay, you guys are all right. But you're also all a little bit wrong. Okay says this. It's a beautiful poetic text. I recommend that you read it. We'll post it on our blog. While I slept, brethren, a revelation was made to me by a very handsome young man who said to me, Who do you think the old woman is from whom you received the little book? I said, The Sibyl. You are wrong, he said. She is not. Who is she then? I said, the church, he replied. So I said to him, why then is she old? Because, he said, she was created the first of all things. That is why she is old. It was for her sake that the world was established. It was for the sake of the church that the world was established. It was the plan of God from the beginning. I'll leave you with that. And I ask you to do, me, do a little homework for me. You think about that. Vatican II says, Already present in figure in the beginning of this world, 
of the world. The church was prepared in marvelous fashion in the history of the people of Israel and the old alliance. Huh? Already present in figure in the beginning. So I want you to go home, a little Lenten exercise, pray about this. Consider what that means for your conception of what the church is. Next week we're going to come back together. We're going to look at some, a, a few modern texts. We're going to give a right meaning to what the church is, how the church understands herself in light of Scripture. And then we will conclude with dealing with those that appear to be outside the church. I'll put it out there. There's the question, right? Is it possible for a Buddhist to be saved? Is it possible for a Jew to be saved? Is it possible for a Baptist to be saved? Okay, and I will stand before you. Hold on. I'm going to offend everyone now. It is not possible for a Buddhist to be saved by Buddhism. Okay? Now, I gave you a little more than I wanted to. We're going to go off of that. We're going to talk about what the church is, where her limits are, how we're to understand her, how we see her, and then how we're to properly understand St. Cyprian's text. Amen? Amen. All right. We're going to take a quick break for those that can stay around. One of the most dangerous things, and this is why I concluded with that quote from the Shepherd of Hermas, is to see the church, without a better word, to see it, it's not the best word, in a plastic way. And what do I mean by a plastic way? Meaning, as something made up, huh? Number one, made up, invented, as an institution that's just simply an aggregate of parts. We have this part, we have this part, and we have a pope, and we have the bishops, and we have these things. This is not the church. The church is something organically rooted in creation itself. It's not something that can be or not be in the sense of creation. Okay, and we're going to talk about that more next time. Modern conception that the church is the Pope standing at the Vatican, uh, blessing the people from his window in a stone building, and they get an idea of the plaster church, the concrete church, the plastic church. That's not the conception of St. Paul. And we have to get ourselves back to a biblical foundation. And when we're in that biblical foundation, then our understanding of the church will expand tremendously and beautifully. All right? Okay, anyways. Questions? I won't bite and I won't yell at you, I promise. I'm sorry. Yes? Following Adam and Eve's sin, there was no church. There is no salvation. There was no confession. There was no uh, Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, they are in hell. True or false? Oh. False. Do you know that Adam and Eve are considered saints of the church? Yes, they are separated from God in uh, some of the church fathers called the limbo of the fathers, or what Scripture calls Hades, okay, in which Christ entered in to reveal Himself to them. And this gets at an aspect that we talked about last time about 
desire or baptism, entrance into Christ, can take place in various external forms, but the internal form of that union with Christ is always the same. And that's why, and I don't want to go too far because we're we'll talking about this next week, but that's why in Acts of the Apostles, when they say, what must we do? Peter doesn't just say, be baptized. He says, believe and be baptized. Faith is an essential, essential, without which it's not, component of baptism. And that's where our Protestant brothers and sisters say, "Uh, yeah, that is true. That's why children or infants can't be baptized. And I say, false. You don't understand what the church is. Because the church is an organic union. And just as St. Paul, what does he say? To make up for that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of the body. He's doing things within the body which heal other aspects of the body. And that's so fundamental. I kind of had to hurry over it too much, but that text in Ephesians chapter 4. I know I'm going a little bit beyond your question here, but it's important. Yeah, I just finished it too early. Verse 16. From whom, till we're built up into Christ, right? From whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied when each member is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. And the beautiful part about that is joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied. St. Paul's understanding of the body is so beautiful. He's saying, look, there's this real relationship between the hand and the elbow. And if the elbow is damaged, the hand's going to be damaged. That's why when you sin, I'm hurt. And when I'm sanctified, you benefit. Because we're working with an organic body. Now, coming back to what you said, the church ceased to exist. This is not the understanding of the church. That the church was damaged, yes. That paradise faded. That the household of God was not revealed fully. But the church is simply the manifestation of what is already present from all eternity in the communion of God. That manifestation of the church then becomes revealed on earth among men, the incarnate church, if you will, the assembly of the Lord, those that are gathered together in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The church is a reflection of the Trinity. And yes, that church can fade in its revelation on earth, but the church never ceases to exist because the church is present in heaven. And now it is revealed among men. Now, Saints Adam and Eve. Throughout the Old Testament, we're going to look at this. I meant to get to it tonight. The assembly of the Lord, those that are gathered together by the Lord and in the Lord, form what Vatican II calls the church in figure. Huh? Almost like in shadow, in preparation, in seed form. It's beginning to, be, to coalesce, to be brought back together by the Lord. Present there in the beginning... Yes, damaged by the fall, represented or or building up uh, by Noah and by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all the fathers of the Old Testament. All those that are saved by Christ in preparation. And we'll talk about that next time. Their salvation, always dependent upon the life of God. Saved by Christ to whom they look and are preparing without knowing the fullness of what God is going to give. And we'll talk about that more next time.
What about the thief on the cross, though, who was not baptized? It's a great question. Great question. This is a classic one that the fathers look at. Uh, another one we, I was just speaking with the Dominicans about today is the 40 holy martyrs of Sebasti in Armenia. I don't know if you know their story. A great Lenten reading. A um, whole legion of the Roman army up in the far distant edges of the empire holding back the barbarian horde were secretly Christian. They were found out they were a Christian. And they were hauled before their commander. They refused to denounce Christ. And they were marched out into a freezing pond and left there to freeze to death. But they weren't that nice. The rulers set up warm baths filled with water and, and uh, with fire under them to entice them to come and renounce Christ and to enjoy the, the baths. And as the night wore on and they f- began to freeze to death, one soldier broke rank and ran to the shore. And just before reaching the warm baths, he fell prostrate and died on the ground. One of the soldiers, seeing the faith of the other 39, was so moved that he woke up the other soldiers that had now fallen asleep. And he said, I too am a Christian. He tore off his clothes, ran into the freezing lake, and was crowned with martyrdom. Baptism is a matter of being plunged into Christ, being joined to Him. And that joining can take place, yes, most fully, properly, in a baptism by water, but as the church teaches, and again we will talk about more next time, but there's also, as I said before in Acts, believe and be baptized. If you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in its section on baptism, it says, those who are preparing for baptism, the catechumens, if they die during their time of preparation, are treated by the church as a full member of the church. Why? Because that desire, that orientation already begins that entrance into divine life. And the one who has divine life within him cannot be lost will not be lost unless he turn his back upon Christ when he turns and commits mortal sin. Mortal sin, don't think again in a plastic term. Some, a, a, a recent convert to the church asked me on the phone the other day, if someone dies in mortal sin, do they go to hell? And I said, yeah, here's the problem because we never defined our terms properly, okay? Mortal means deadly sin. And why is it deadly sin? Because it's sin which rejects the life of God from the soul. Everlasting life is exiled. Man becomes apart from God. And if he dies apart from God, it's not because God's mean or the church said, oh, uh, how dare you do that? That's really bad and therefore you're going to go to hell for it. No, it's because if you do that, you're putting yourself outside of God. And if you're outside of God and you die, you will receive your just reward. It's going to happen to you is that you're going to live forever apart from God. That's mortal sin. I'm not sure what the question was, but I think that gets to it. All right. Yes. The two-part definition of justification, active and passive, um, what you might have given us biblical proof for it, but could you restate it if you already did, the biblical proof for both the active and the passive part of justification? Yeah, I I didn't really get into that. from a biblical proof standpoint, I just—I mean, we talked about salvation and what it is, participation in divine life, which is very clear in Scripture. Um, and I pointed out that text in, in Second Peter, to become partakers in the divine nature. That's something that's foreign to Protestant theology. 
to become partakers, and it's abhorrent that man could become a partaker in the divine nature. It was abhorrent to the Jews. But God's gift goes beyond what is abhorrent to man. This is a common problem I deal with in, in catechizing people, is their lack of ability to allow God to love them. If they'll just allow God to love them, then they'll start to understand what the church is. This is why we have ecumenical councils and popes that are infallible. This is why we have infallibility in the church, because God's infallible. This is why we have people that are, that are incorrupt. This is why people are assumed into heaven. God never wanted us to be dead. And so it comes back to a fundamental principle about what our salvation is all about. That there's a real participation. And, and James, I would just point to Romans chapter 6 as so important because it's in Him, in His life, which we are now saved and we begin to live that life. Sin separates us from that life. That's why St. Paul says, stop it. Because every time you're sinning, you're putting yourself, distancing yourself from that life. Anyways, we can talk about that more later, maybe. Okay. Is it possible to get some kind of notes or handouts or something like that? Yeah, how many of you have been visiting our online learning center on a regular basis? On a regular basis? We're posting all sorts of wonderful stuff there, and to be honest with you, a lot of what I covered tonight, we're posting there right now during Lent. I have a nice little uh, four-part series that I wrote entitled, Salvation. And it's being posted there on our Learning Center. So if you check websites on a regular basis, put our Learning Center on that list of things you're checking because we're doing it. Uh, Melanie's been working tremendously, making sure there's lots of new stuff there. All the important things the Pope's saying about Lent, all the important things the saints have, say, have said, you know, not so important things that Deacon Sabatino is saying. <laughs> uh, and the second question is uh, about the salvation uh seems like about 75, 80% of the world is non-Christian and hasn't been exposed to Christianity and so on, and uh, probably uh, you know, a lot of them never will be exposed to Christianity. So, you know, what, okay. what happens to them after they die? Yeah, I'm gonna, that's, our talk, that's what we're going to talk about next week. How all of this stuff, when the rubber meets the road, what do we say to the nice Hindu? We're going to talk about the church's teaching on that. Okay, last question. What? It better be a good one. <laughs> no pressure. Let her hold it. Her hold it. Okay. Um, yeah. No, it, it was really kind of a historical thing. I'd never heard that about Luther, about what he thought, and that was his motivation for his Reformation, because I thought it had to do with the corruption and selling of indulgences. And, you know, I mean, to me, that's what I remember learning. Yeah, no, no absolutely. So I, I, I can't imagine that... That would really turn people on, you know, dung covered by snow. I yeah, think I wouldn't uh, like that. You know, the ideas have consequences, right? And um, when we separate ourselves from the teaching voice of the church, oftentimes the consequence is our theology gets all screwed up. I'm sorry to say that, but it does. I mean, it just gets all messed up. And yes, there were problems in the church which Luther was rightly renouncing some problems that you perceive as problems that you didn't rightly renounce. But there were problems in the church, just as there are problems today. The answer is not to renounce the church's teaching. Because when you do that, you separate yourself from the church, then you become your own theologian. 
who gets to make up your own kind of things. That's why our topic tonight, outside the church is no salvation. So frustrating when people say to me, Deacon Sabatino, that's so judgmental, that's terrible. This is so fundamental to our faith of what we believe about Jesus Christ and about His church. And yet, as Catholics, we say, oh, we're going to, we're going to hide from it. That's not nice. In 2012, we don't say things like that anymore. Well, guess what? When we start changing what we teach, we start changing what we believe. And I, for one, am not a Unitarian Universalist. I'm a Christian. And I believe that Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. Buddha is not. Mohammed is not. Mohammed's not going to save anyone. But Jesus Christ sure can. And we're going to talk about that next week. So please don't say how Deacon Sabatino says, if you're a Buddhist, you can't be saved. But I'll tell you what, Buddhism will never, can never, and has never saved anyone because Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can save. Because Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the incarnate God. Okay? I think that's a good place to end. I'll see you this Sunday. God bless you. Thank you for coming. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.